Part 4 of The Boy with the White Hair Written and performed by Nick Thurston We better go and get a few logs from the stockpile," said Barbo, rubbing his arms. "Long as I've been up here, you might say I've still got Riverlander's blood." "Maybe," said my brother. "But if that's so, I think we might all have a drop or two in us. It's a brisk night, to be sure." Although the fire was still burning brightly in the hearth, it had gone down a bit and the cold had found its way inside. It ebbed against our backs and licked at our ears. Why not take a break here, said Barbo, to refill our cups and to bring our fire back up to scratch. The mugs in our hands had gone cold, and none of us seemed ready to complain about a few more logs. As if to reinforce the sentiment, The wind blew against the windows with the same low, thundering sound as before. My brother shuffled the fire with an iron, but even the glowing embers seemed to have grown shy and were slow to give us any heat. "'You don't mind, do you, master?' said Minka. The old master builder shrugged and turned from the fire to look out the window. What do you say, pound cake? Minka said to his wife, and grinned. How about another round? The cat had returned to its place on Eula's lap. She stroked it and sighed, looking toward the kitchen as though it were a long way off. I went outside. Being that it was so close to Long Shadow, the moons had yet to rise. The night was heavy and very dark. Only the faintest glimmer of starlight shone on the banks of fresh snow. Stepping out the door, I felt the cold sharpen about my neck and at the small of my back where my tunic crept up under my belt. I clapped my gloves together and pulled my collar close and hurried around the house towards the shed where my brother kept his firewood. As I passed the horses, I saw that Stuna was shivering. His tail was tucked up between his legs. Our shaggy northern horses are no strangers to the cold, but this was shaping up to be a bitter night. I left off fetching the wood and went to undo his big blanket, which I kept rolled up and buckled in the back of the sleigh. The cargo was all covered with snow. I brushed it off, until the belts and buckles appeared, but they were frozen shut. I'm getting it, I said, as Stuna nickered and stamped. Just a minute more. When he stamped again, I looked up and saw that he was rummaging around in the snow near the hitching post. He'd slipped his nose bag. Sighing, I went over and dug it up with my hands. I tried to strap it back on his head, but it came loose straight away. The cord was fraying. It wouldn't stay tight. 
I cursed myself for not having replaced it back in Totsendown when I'd first noticed the damage. Taking off my gloves, I tied a knot in the ice-hardened strap and got it to stay over his head. Then I realized it was empty, so I took it off, refilled it from the grain sack, and again retied it. All right now, I muttered. Just another moment. Back at the sleigh, I unburied the blanket straps again, which had already been covered back up with snow. My fingertips stung as I pulled on the stiff and frozen buckles. When they wouldn't come undone, I went round and got my riding whip out of its little slot up front. Hunching and grunting over the rolled blanket, I smacked the buckles with the whip shaft to break the ice. At last, I was able to get it out. With some difficulty, for the wind came up hard against me, I draped the nice warm quilt over Stuna's back and tied it under his belly. I could no longer feel my hands. The storm was becoming a real blizzard now. Snow fell heavily all round. I looked up, and my face was instantly spattered with cold, wet flakes. They tickled my eyelashes, and all I could see looking up was darkness, with little spots falling endlessly through it. Then the wind came whistling through the streets again, and the flakes blew up in a great flurry all around me, and I could see nothing at all. And suddenly I felt afraid, for I could see nothing at all. And for a moment or two I forgot where I was, and the house nearby seemed to disappear amid the shadows, and I felt as if I was all alone in the world, and that nothing could be done for me. Somewhere in the darkness, wind moaned over unseen battlements. All of a sudden it was nine years ago, and I was back at home in Windsomer, listening to the moaning of the dying children. My wife stared at me. Her glassy eyes were vacant. But what could we do? The cries were so pitiful, so intense, that they could be heard above the storm. But there was no food. Nothing to give them. How could one listen to this? Better to die than listen to this. Better to die. Stuna blew his lips behind me. The gust relented. I shook my head and blinked, remembering where I was. And when. In another moment, the memory was gone. I put my gloves back on, but snow had fallen inside of them and they only made my hands wet. I went back to the shed, now feeling really cold and annoyed that no one had offered to come out and help me, I filled my arms with larch and made for the front door. But as I was just about to reach it, I stopped and squinted into the darkness. Out in the street, I saw a shadow. At first I was confused. Was it a post, or some other unfamiliar landmark? But no. It was distinctly the shadow of a person. Hello there! 
I called out, puffing under my load. Hello? But the shadow did not respond. Instead, it seemed somehow to become less distinct, and a moment later, I was no longer sure that I had seen anything at all. The wind howled again and drove in, blowing the snow into my face. I went for the door. We nearly all went to bed waiting for you, laughed my brother as I stamped off my boots in the entryway and staggered over. What took you so long? I wondered if you had gone to sleep, I said a little crossly. I was tending to Stuna and fumbling around in the dark. Might have been nice to have a hand. I said you should have gone out there, said Eula to her husband. Turning to me, she held out a steaming mug. Come over here and drink this, you poor thing. Ah, but you'll take off your boots first, won't you, dear? I couldn't stay annoyed for long. Now that I was out of the cold, the house felt warmer and cozier than it had to begin with. And with a nice hot mug of sweet catayulde in my hands, I began to feel fine and childlike and rather willing to forgive a few short minutes of being left to face the darkness alone. "'Our hero has returned,' said Barbo, toasting me with spiced wine. "'Come, we've kept your place warm.' I put a few logs on the fire. Larch, whether smote or fairly fallen, is sacred to Owaira, our Lady of the Hearth. The master builder seemed glad of my choice. He murmured a charm as I lay the last branch on the flame. Firelight breaking, embers warming, hearth smoke healing, all and all. Away, 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 within the hearth set down the day. Away and all, And all away, within the hearth, let shadows lie. After we had settled in, we all turned to the old man and waited for him to begin again. The wood was dry and well-seasoned, but even so, it wanted to snap and hiss. For a time, all else was silent. We let the fire talk. After the flames had settled, and heat was spreading throughout the room, the master builder once more began to speak. Then came the hardest winter that even hold has ever known. Thula climbed out of the Sunat Hauden as snow fell on the winding road and it disappeared beneath her feet. She crossed the plateau bent double against the relentless wind and staggered down the lonesome roads into the northern highlands. Her thin body shook with cold, exhaustion, and hatred. She had come to civilization with a heart full of hope. 
she left, having emptied it behind her. The men and women outside the mountains were as her father had said they would be. In fact, they were worse. They were small, greedy, fearful creatures who gave nothing to strangers but sharp words. They had forgotten the ancient laws of guest friendship. Their very thane, first among them, whose responsibility it was to care for all of his people without exception, had turned her away at the point of his sword. Even the rough, bullying Kurags were better than that. Thula barely noticed the towns she passed. At the forested gates of Inothen, she glanced up only long enough to spit into the frozen mud. When the horse guards of Jalhelm hailed her, she cast such a withering glare in their direction that they muttered charms on themselves and let her be. They could offer her nothing now. She turned her back on the wisps of smoke rising from beyond the palisade and went on. Mile after bitter mile passed, and Thula sank into a waking dream. The higher she went, the colder it got. The colder it got, the further she retreated inside herself. The further she went into herself, the greater her reservoir of hatred swelled. Tucked beneath her clothing, the charm of Cyrn began to shimmer with a ghostly inner light. When Thula reached the last pass above Noost, she halted and turned back. Winter had closed its fist around her. All that remained of the world below were empty slopes and ridges of black rock whipped by ribbons of wind-blown snow. The sun was a dull gray smear in the sky from which no warmth came. But Thula no longer felt her frozen feet and hands. An inexplicable hardness had seeped into her bones. It was midnight when she arrived at the tiny cottage where she and her father had shared so many memories. The windows were dark. Even before she dug down to the door and got it open, she knew what she would find inside. The Kurag herd lay on his bed, frozen stiff. He did not even smell. His skin had only darkened and gone sallow, as if he had been replaced by a man of wax. The herd was gone. Thula dragged Mulad's body outside and burned it, using all that remained of the firewood. It was there, standing before the raging pyre, that a mysterious presence, buried deep within her, began to speak. Its voice was as ancient as the moon's, as hard as the loss of innocence. What it was, she could not say. Yet, hadn't it been there her whole life? It told her never to warm herself up again. <laughs> 
It is best not to speak too much of these things, nor too directly. Whores are creatures of an older world, a colder world, a world that has been closed to us by time. We can only catch glimpses of it in the stories we tell. Yet stories themselves are summonings. They can be dangerous, both to tell and to hear. And we have come to the most hazardous part of ours. But we will not let that stop us. For a tale told by firelight is a sacred journey. Once begun, there can be no turning back. We must carry on to the end. So let us imagine that Thula's transformation began in this way. She started to use her magic more and more. At first, it was out of necessity. When she ran out of food, she whispered a luring spell on a red agate stone and buried it among the snares she used to catch snowshoe hare. Caught in its hypnotic throb, the hares strangled themselves five at a time. When the snowdrifts were too loose to walk on, she turned her spite on them, speaking hard words that froze their backs into solid crusts. When a great crane lost in the mountains, landed on the lake, she drew a freezing fog around it. It tried in vain to fly away, but its wings were stuck to the ice. She ate it raw. The more she used her magic, the more it wanted to be used. She went by instinct, listening to wind, rock, and cloud, and allowing herself to be directed by what they told her. Eventually, she began to listen to the cold itself. Then, she really began to learn. The cold taught her new, more powerful spells. It made her strong enough to walk the knife's edge of survival, and offered to make her stronger still. If only she would do something for it in return. It began to beckon her. Slowly, she gave up even the small luxuries of humanity that she still clung to. She began to wear less and less clothing. She ate less and less food. She left the door cracked open at night, even when the air was so brittle with chill that it felt as if it would snap in two. She gave herself to the cold, and the cold gave itself to her. One day, as Thula stood on a high and desolate pass, the wind took the little hairs behind her ear and began to play with them as a lover might. It tugged at her collar. It kissed her neck. As she walked among the boughs of sleeping fir trees, she felt the cold bowling up beneath them and reaching out to embrace her. 
and when she sat before her tiny fire, kindled from two or three sticks, just to melt ice in the pot for water, she felt the urge to spit on it and put it out again. She did not know what was happening to her, but she didn't care. On Long Shadow, Thula sat by the window, brooding. The night was still and dark. The frost etched chaotic spirals on the glass. She was thinking about Thane Hafnir and the people in the land below the mountains, and sharpening her hatred. There was a knock at the door. She looked up. Had it only been the wind, wrapping the wood against the frame? Slowly, Thula rose and went across the room, her bare feet silent on the hard-packed earth floor. She flung the door wide. In the darkness, she felt her lover waiting for her. She went out. You have been loyal to me came a whisper on the wind. You have done all that I have asked of you. What would you ask of me in return? Thula, her heart pounding the walls of her thin chest, spoke a single word into the frozen night. Vengeance. And so it was that the monster came to Evenhold. The first anyone heard of it was a strange report that came in from the mountain town of Hymars. An old man's dog had been barking at something, and when he went out to see what it was, he swore that the darkness itself swept in and dragged the dog away. There were no tracks, and all he had seen were a pair of faceless white eyes shining in the shadow. No one gave his story much credit, not at first. But the rumors kept coming. From all the towns and villages along the highlands of the Haladrake they came. Something was out there in the night, something terrible. Livestock disappeared. Others were violently slashed, their blood frozen about their wounds. Baffled herdsmen surveyed these scenes of carnage, but could find no trace of the creature that had attacked their animals. As winter drove on with no sign of stopping, the attacks began to target people. In Enoven, a woman went to a neighbor's house for a bit of flour and never returned. Then a pair of hunters out in the woodlands near Juvenal after dark were torn into pieces and left to be found by a search party. Three children were taken while playing on the frozen pond at Neust. Some said it was a thok, for as we all remember, they were sometimes seen in those days, even so far north from Yura's rock. 
Others thought it was the work of a band of marauding gangrels. But Thokar always made tracks. And what gangrel left behind fresh meat in midwinter? Soon, almost every village on the plateau had lost someone. Then, more than one. People became fearful of the night. Mothers refused to let their children out, hours before the sun even went down. Herdsmen in the pasture lands set about their work with one eye always behind them. Town councillors heard tearful accounts of loss, one after the next. It was about this time that someone gave a name to the mysterious force preying on the hold. They called it the Kundu, the Silent Death. When the attacks reached the very gates of Oathguard, Thane Hafnir knew he had to act. A guard, taken at night from the battlements of the castle itself, was the final straw. The very next day, Hafnir called for his advisors. Send for the greatest hunters in all of Evenhold, he said. Tell them that whosoever shall slay the beast which ravages our people will have our love for all of time. And besides, they will have treasure such as they can only dream of. Our swelling coffers will open for them, and they shall have their pick of the lot, equal in weight to the creature when at last it is caught. Hunters and heroes alike came then to Oathguard. They came from the sunny fields of Yotafini in the south, from among the craggy peaks of Arundum and Kazmarga in the west, from the untamed wilderness along the eastern belt, and from the hilly reaches of the far north. They brought with them dogs and horses, great names and long histories, and weapons about which songs have been sung. They arrived in the halls of Thane Hafnir and Mea Esenaya, and each was feasted in turn. Then they went out into the snow-draped land in search of the monster. Few returned. When the greatest hunters of Evenhold had tried and failed, Thane Hafnir sent once more for the Neithid Kalistra, whose grim prophecy had begun the whole matter. This time, however, Hafnir's request was refused. Ancient Kalistra could no longer make the journey down from the cliffside shrine of Shushanay. The Thane was forced to go there himself, and to climb the treacherous switchbacks until he reached the place where the great river carved out its pool from the stone. He humbled himself by removing his cloak of office and waded through the icy water to reach the shrine's entrance. When he arrived at last before the seat of Kalistra, he knelt before her. Great seer, he said. Once, long ago, I cast you from my halls in anger. 
Perhaps it was for this sin that our people now suffer from the monster they call the Kundu. I have come to beg your forgiveness, and to ask you what can be done to rid our people of this curse. Will you help me? Will you help us? The cloudy-eyed Neithid rose up in her carven stone chair, and he saw clearly how old she had become. Her brittle hair was white. Her brown skin was lined and worn from a hundred thousand days of sun and wind. Each of her knuckles was like a knob of wood. Her head wobbled slightly on her thin neck. I have no power to drive away that which has come here, she said in a withered voice. I do not ask that of you, said Hafnir. Only tell me, what is its nature? Where can we look for the strength to destroy it? Kalistra was silent for a time. She stared ahead, seeming not to see what was before her, but instead to gaze into another realm. Just when Hafnir was beginning to wonder if she had gone senile, she spoke again. The monster you call the Kundu is a creature born of hate, said Kalistra. It may be driven off by hate and by the weapons of men, but it will only return. Hate cannot defeat it. Love, said Hafnir, is that what you hint at? You would have me love that which brings torment to our people? It is not your love that is needed, said Kalistra. Whose then, said Hafnir. Every hunter and hero in our hold has been summoned, and each of them has been defeated. There is no longer anyone left in Evenhold with the courage to face the beast. It is no hero of Evenhold who will end this reign of terror, said Kalistra. But one who lives to the east, in the forests of neighboring Sir Sidramar, he makes his home. The man who answers the name of Eglas. And so Hafnir sent a fast rider from Oathgard to Dwinaford in Sir Sidramar to call upon the legendary Eglas. Do you recall what was said about him then? News of his early exploits reached even the hinterlands. Even so, a few moments may be spared on his past. Let us revisit that which made him the talk of Elgaskond. Before he was out of the cradle, both of his parents were killed by raiding Eurons. <laughs>
For reasons unknown, he was then taken in and raised by a Vilgard. His home became the forest of Nim. Under the tutelage of the woodland spirit, Eglas' knowledge of the natural world soon reached levels unparalleled among men. By time he reached the age of ten, he was well-versed in the arts of subsistence, tracking, herb lore, and listening. By twelve, he had mastered all twenty-seven sacred branches of the world and had achieved great understanding in the forest, hill, and river domains. By fifteen, he was the equal of the greatest woodsman in the hold. By sixteen, even the centaurs marveled at his astonishing talents. When Hafnir's messenger reached him, Eglas had grown into a tall, handsome man, lean of body and dark of hair, with smoldering green eyes and a brooding countenance that drove the women wild. His voice was melodic and smooth and commanded respect, for though raised in the woods, he came quickly to his words and used them well and in likeness to the great heroes of old, he carried himself with that effortless self-confidence that wins friends and admirers just as quickly as it wins enemies. Eglas arrived at Oathgard riding a massive falsha. Doradrun was this winter horse's name, or dark flanks, and he was a true exemplar of his kind. He had wide, crescent-shaped hooves that allowed him to walk over the deepest drifts. Their sharp, outer edges bit easily into ice and frozen turf alike. A long, black mane fell about his shoulders, and his umber coat rippled with muscle. He had fierce, brown eyes that flashed with pride for Doradrun knew himself to be more powerful than any warhorse. As he plowed through the field of snow that covered the road, he never once broke his stride. The guards in the towers caught first sight of Eglas. They sounded the horn of welcome, and by the time he reached the city, the battlements were bristling with onlookers. By now, all had heard of their supposed savior. But what sort of man would he turn out to be? Stopping before the gatehouse, Eglas unfurled a long banner from his spear shaft. It was emblazoned with the crest of Sir Sidramar, seven stars encircling a silver stag, set upon a field of darkest Mirkur, which is neither purple nor blue, nor green, but all three at once. With a great bellow, Doradrun reared up on his hind legs, and Eglos thrust the spear into the air. The banner leapt free, snapping smartly in the wind, and Eglos called out in a bold and cheerful voice. Friends of Evenhold, greetings from Dwinaford and from Sir Sidramar. I am the one called Eglas, come to relieve you of your sorrow. For it is said throughout Elgaskond 
that eternal winter has come to this place. At its heart is some grim monster in need of slaying. Let me be the one to do this thing. Let me be the one to carry the sun back to your lands. A great cheer went up along the battlements, and the gates were thrown open before him. As he rode through the streets, he was met by flocks of wide-eyed children and by the tearful survivors of those lost to the creature still prowling the land. He paused to greet each one. There was a feast that night at the castle. Thane Hafnir pulled out all the stops. Eglas, it was said, was a proud man and appreciated being the center of attention. The great hall was filled with sprigs of holly, sweet-scented cinnamon from the plains of the Teragatsu, twinkling silver bells, and strings of polished rune coins. All the great families of the province had come, or had sent delegations. Everyone now placed their faith in Eglas, the young and dashing hunter who had come to pit himself against the Kundu. Eglas was not unmoved by the display in his honor, and he did his part to add to the ceremony. He bowed three times when he came into the hall, and after the third he went to his knees and spoke the blessing of Owaira over the tables. The Vilgard had taught him well. He knew the sigils and standards hanging behind each of the noble guests, and to their surprise and great delight, he made a point of addressing the head of each group by both name and title. Former thanes, wealthy merchant women, and village headmen all traded glances as if to say, Sure looks the part, doesn't he? Or perhaps, Mark those manners. Wish my own boy would take a page out of the same book. At last, Eglas sat down in the place of honor, to the left of the thane. All eyes then turned to the doorway that communicated with the kitchen. But before the first platters of food were brought into the hall, the musicians of Oathgard rose to their feet. Out came long-necked lutes, crook-braced lyres, hand-drums, flutes, and harps of Estwinarin olive wood. At first there were some grumbles. Few in attendance had eaten since the night before, in anticipation of the feast. But no sooner had the first notes sounded from the hollow belly of the lute than their appetites were forgotten. Such music Eglas had never heard. It began softly, tentatively. The plucking of the strings and half-blown notes of the flute were like the first steps of a newborn animal. Then the whispering melody began to rise, and new colors entered it, and it gained strength and fervor until it had become a great torrent of sound and rhythm. An astonishing effect was produced on all present. They sighed and shook and their eyes glistened. They forgot where they were. 
The wild, rolling song had captured them whole and dissolved them into itself. Each seemed to have been transported to his or her own private, inner realm. As he listened, Eglos found himself standing in a wide and open field, surrounded on all sides by stalks of swaying barley. The sun was setting flame-like in the distance, and a hundred billion stars arced above him across the purple sky. It was a memory recalled from his youth, of the short time when his parents still walked the earth. He began to weep. Just as the song was reaching its climax, a door opened in the middle of the wall. Sweet-smelling smoke rolled out of it, and bright, white light beamed into the room. It was as if a portal had been opened into some higher realm. Gasps were heard all round the room. From the secret doorway emerged the most beautiful woman any of them had ever seen. Freerla, dressed in a silver gown and glittering with gemstones, stepped into the room. She was like a vision from another world. Hyene had hung one of her magic lanterns upon Freerla that night. None who saw her could deny it. She came and stood before the assembled tables with the ceremonial first cup of wine in her hands and spoke the Sakwakani. Eglos did not hear a word of what she said. He was spellbound by her beauty, devastated by it. The rest of the evening passed for him as in a dream. Though he spoke to those around him, he was utterly unaware of what he said or what was told him in return. He left off in the middle of sentences, forgot subjects and names, and lost whole caravans of thought, so that those who conversed with him were left wondering whether he was right in the head. But Eglas was not right in the head. Eglas was in love. Ever his eyes drifted back towards Frirla. She sat but a few seats away, on the other side of the Thane and his lady. Yet that was like a thousand miles to him. All through the night, Eglas found himself craning his neck in order to lay eyes on her. It seemed he saw her only in snatches, through the maddening crisscross of outstretched hands and other faces. Each time he caught a glimpse of her, his heart stuttered violently in his chest. What was this? The old wisdom says the gods give each of us two hearts. One they leave caged within us, the other they set loose to roam the world. It is this second heart that frees the first, and only the most fortunate among us are destined to find it. Eglos thought he had come to even hold at the summons of Thane Hafnir. He thought he had come to test himself against the monster they called the Kundu. Now he knew the real reason. 
the Yosha had brought Eglos to Evenhold to find his second heart. Thank you.